0: Good to be back with you again. Lynn and I enjoy our times when we have a chance to worship here at Clover ARP. So Thank you for your invitation. I wonder if you might turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans with me. I'd like to read 17 verses there from Romans 8. The 8th chapter of the book of Romans is about life in the Spirit, we are heirs with Christ Jesus, and that great life which we anticipate, and even portion of which we really enjoy just now, is outlined for us in this 8th chapter of the book of Romans. So I'll be reading from Romans 8, beginning at verse 1, and now God's word before us. St. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, There is therefore now no condemnation as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So ends God's reading. Pray with me as we anticipate the preaching of this word over us. Our Father and our great God, we look to you even this morning. And we recognize that except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who try it all. Oh God, I have no desire to build this house this day. This is your house. But I pray as a of your word that you would grant to me clear headed thinking and every word that what I say might be from you and not from me. Grant, O Father, that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And Holy Spirit, even now, we ask you to come and work in us that which we can never do for ourselves, that we might be like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thirteenth century in Europe, marked by a number of great writers, exceptional writers. One of them was an Italian named Dante Alighieri. He was quite a man. He was a poet. He was a statesman. He was a political figure. He was, by every measure, brilliant. He authored some 20 books. But he had a heart for his people, because unlike all of his contemporaries who were writing in Greek and Latin, Dante Alighieri, wrote it in the language of the people. He wrote to their heart. He wrote in his native tongue, Italian. Many a man, many a poet, many a statesman have been moved by Dante Alighieri. In fact, it's been said by other poets later in life that all of the world is divided between Shakespeare and Dante Alighieri. There is no third. During my high school days, I confess, I had to read one book by Dante (laughs) Alighieri. I don't remember much about it. It was called The Inferno. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a fictional tale in which the author, Dante, is the main character. And he is accompanied by the famous poet, Virgil, on a journey. Not to the countryside, not to the cities, but through hell. Through hell. I don't remember much about that, and I don't even think I did very well on the examination for that book. I confess it here before you. But I do remember one scene in that tale, which was unbelievable. Dante describes that he and Virgil are making their way, ready to enter into hell, into the bowels of the earth, to descend down, down, down. As they enter, into that foreboding place, they pass under a stone archway. And these are the words that have been chiseled into that archway. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The Inferno is a make-believe story. It's an allegory. It tells a story through a series of fictional accounts. But what about the real journey to hell? Have you thought of that, by this day's end, across the globe, 150,000 people will breathe in their last breath. And many of them will have rejected Christ. Can you even imagine the feelings of those who know nothing of our Savior, who we know, and who we confide in, who we trust for our forgiveness? Can you imagine what their feelings will be like as they realize, I must abandon hope. Hell is described by our Lord in several passages, not here in Romans 8, but in the New Testament. You know them. By own words, he describes it as a place in which the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. In fact, he even describes hell's inhabitants as being salted with fire. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. But hell is not simply a place of physical suffering. It's so much more than that. The condemned in hell live on there, forever separated from the joy and contentment of the God who made them and who desired that for them. They know nothing of the satisfaction of heaven. You say, well, but maybe just maybe, given all of their sin and Given that all of those with them are sinners, perhaps there's some sort of fellowship in those dark caverns. Surely amidst all of that torment, the condemned will know something of companionship. But there is none. While alive, they gleefully enjoyed the most sinful of pleasures, but now dead in hell, they are marked by profound loneliness. Once they've passed through that eternal portal, once they have abandoned all hope, once they have recognized that they cannot return, not to family, not to possessions, not to professions, not to those things which they so busied themselves against that which was so true, the gospel and God's call on them, they become, as Jude says in the New Testament, like wandering stars. Do you see the picture of this? Have you painted it in your mind's eye? Do you feel now the weight of this awfulness? Do you? Then I want you to hear as Christians this glorious truth. It's verse 1 of our text. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of the awfulness of hell is gone for us. And we feel light, free and clean. So just as we begin, just as we begin, I want you to see, as our first place of setting down, that for Christians, there is a glory to be found. There is a glory to be found. God's great desire is His own glory, and He will, through His creatures, glorify Himself, and that glory will rest upon us, and there is never to be a fear that I might be condemned. I might abandon all hope. Oh, well, no. Not for the Christian. Not for the Christian. If you hear nothing else of what is said from this text this morning, rest easy. You are safe in the arms of the Lord Jesus if you have faith in Him. Interesting, isn't it, just as we begin in this verse 1, that Paul starts this sort of way. There's no condemnation. It's an incredible freeing thing. He doesn't begin with a series of uh, arguments or logical steps. No, just simply the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. You will not be condemned. So that's a breath of fresh air as he enters into this eighth chapter. Why does he do it, though? Why not lead us up through a series of steps so we can kind of see his argument and see how he postures and see how he comes to this logical conclusion? Why does he do that? He wants to show us the wonder of our Creator, how good he is, how strong he is in preserving his elect, He'll have those who are his own. Not one will be lost. Not one. Paul starts here so we can drink in this incredible truth. No matter what I do or what I don't do matters. So long as my faith is in Jesus the Christ. I am safe in the beloved. God sees me as he sees Christ. We are safe in him. There is no condemnation. For those in him. You know, as I was pulling these notes together, the Holy Spirit reminded me of a chorus that I sang as a boy. I think we sing it in the ARP church from time to time. The choir members most assuredly know it. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child now, forever I stand. That is glorious, and it's ours, ours alone. There is a glory to be found. Let's look further in this text. There's a freedom to enjoy as well. Look at verse 2, would you? What's the text say? For the law of the spirit of life has set you, what's the word? Free. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is a freedom to enjoy as a Christian. It's not just glory in the sweet by and by. It's steak on the plate <laughs> right now. Wonderful freedom that we have in Christ. The Christian is free. God lifts the burden of condemnation. He allows for this In the living. You've read the book of Romans surely before. You've had pastors preach through it surely before. You remember in Romans 7, Paul struggles when he recognizes what he's like. That which I don't want to do, I do. That which I want to do, I don't do. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And then he utters those words, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Do you remember That's freedom. That's freedom. Jesus comes, and he saves us. In his death and resurrection, he supplies to us a righteousness, his righteousness. You say, well, I know that. It's the basic building blocks of Christianity. Do You live in that freedom, though, every day. You commit your sin, and you say, oh, I do that which I would not do. (laughs) There's a freedom. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He comes and he supplies this sanctification, sorry, justification to us, and he makes us clean. And then, if that were not enough, he visits us with his spirit and fills us, and bit by bit, day by day, he makes us more and more and more, like the Lord Jesus, sanctification. Christ is unto us, Freedom. Christ can be divided. So also justification and sanctification can't be divided. That's our great freedom. I am clean every morning. I wake up and put my feet on the floor. Why? The blood of the Lord Jesus. And for all of those times during that day when I am doing less than I should, as the Holy Spirit comes and reminds me and as I confess and receive yet new forgiveness for those sins, I'm being made more and more like the Lord Jesus, just a little bit. It's like the Catechism says to us, we are more and more able to be less and less like the world and dead to sin. There's a freedom. Some will say to me, "Ah, I don't feel free. I know the truth about myself. I know all my own dirty little secrets, my arrogance, my pride, my indiscretions, my failures. I'm insensitive to those in need, and I covet those who have great things. How can I be free? Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. There is a condemnation. but It's not against you. It's not against me. It's not against the blood-washed saints. It's against sin. There is a condemnation against sin, not the Christian. He, Jesus, condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus comes, and he lives without sin, and in the perfection of life, his performance sets him above the law. Jesus uses the law against sin. He fulfills the righteous demand of the law, which is always saying, you mess up, You're condemned. Jesus meets that head on. You and I attempt to do that. We can. not Weakened by the flesh, we fail. But Jesus comes in the flesh, and he condemns sin in the flesh. He does it by living a perfect life according to the law. Some Christians pit the law against faith. They say, I'm not about the law. I'm about faith. But have you noticed that God uses the law and faith together to redeem us? He does. The Bible doesn't say that the law is bad. I'm not about the law. I'm a New Covenant kind of person. The law is in the New Covenant. The law and faith are together in God's plan of redemption. Listen to Paul as he's writing in this third chapter of Romans. He said, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law isn't to blame for our weaknesses. The law is simply the standard by which we know, I have a problem. Like a schoolmaster, God's law educates us as to what's right and what's wrong, but it has no power to free us. It's the sin at work within us that tries to use the law against us. Oh, you remember what you said to your wife on the way to church. Oh, wow. You remember how you took that which didn't belong to you. And what do we call people that think things that don't belong to them? A thief. You remember how you embellished that story in the telling. It really wasn't quite the way you said it. And what do we call people that say things that aren't true? Liars. Of course, we lay that at everyone's threshold, don't we? And the law comes to us and says, you violated the law, you deserve to be condemned, and Jesus turns it on its head. You might be tempted to suggest that only Jesus could get a benefit from living a perfect life. Maybe only Jesus is the one that can live with this sort of freedom because only Jesus lived freely, but that's not what it says. The last half of verse 4 helps us. It tells us that Jesus lived this perfect life on our behalf in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. us. How can this be? How can Jesus living a perfect life afford us a benefit? Because Jesus is living out his life in perfection and dying in his death sacrificially as our representative. Numbers of you might work for companies. You might be their agent. You might do some traveling. And in your negotiation with other companies or other individuals, you enter into contracts. You sign on behalf of the company. And your signature binds that company. You're a representative. You, in some ways, wield the power of that company. And things happen in response to your actions and your good promises. And all that you do. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus for us. He is our representative. What He accomplishes, we accomplish. He has done the work that our willpower could never do. There is a freedom to enjoy. Be with me, let's look again. There is a Spirit to obey. Verse 5 and following. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. How do we come to embrace the Spirit? How do we come to know the Holy Spirit in our lives? How does that work? How are we filled with the Spirit? Is it some miraculous experience apart from coming to faith in Christ? Not at all. When we open to the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit does His work in us for regeneration, we have Him as our possession. So how is it that we can then, after coming to faith in Christ, not walk with the Spirit? How can it be that we give ourselves to things which are not right, not true? It is because we quench the Spirit. So how can we obey the Spirit? Verse 5 and following. Well, mark it well. Whatever preoccupies the mind, Controls the life. This is one of the great reasons we memorize Scripture. It's not so we can tick something off on our list to say, I've got 50 verses done. It's not that at all. It's so that we can take it in like food and let it change us on the inside. Whatever preoccupies the mind controls the life. Every person in this world daily makes a decision as to what they're about. Our view of the world determines whose standards are we going to embrace today. Am I Christ's own or the world's own? What is the view I have of the world? Is Christ king, crucified, risen, coming again? Is he king over all of this? Have I bowed my knee in submission? Are my every decisions, are my investments, are my plans, is my future, is my present in deference to that king who runs and rules my life? Or is it in deference to that which is in the world just now? Walking in the Spirit, being obedient to the Spirit, setting our minds on the Spirit is a daily occurrence. Filling our minds with the Word of God, praying, seeking God's face. You remember Paul the Apostle as he wrote to the Colossians. What did he say to them? Chapter 3, listen. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you are Christians, Paul says, if you've committed to the Lord, if you're taking serious this whole thing of worship and praise and church, if then you have been raised with Christ, see things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. That's being filled with the Spirit. It's not some mystical experience you're having at midnight, not at all. It is a man or a woman making a decision. I will follow Christ. I will read His word. I will obey the nudge and unction of the Spirit today. I will do that which sets me apart from the world. I will do that which embraces Christ. I will obey. Walking in the Spirit isn't a feeling. It's a decision. I am Christ's own today. To set the mind on the flesh is death, we read. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace everything that comes in by way of the eye gate and the ear gate affects the heart. Be very careful what you see and what you hear and what you give yourself to again and again and again and again. It determines our spiritual posture. It determines if we hear the whisper of the Spirit. This is the way, walk in it, or no. It's not that we spend all our time preoccupied with religion. I'm just going to read the Bible all day long, and that's all I'll ever do, and in that way I'll be filled with the Spirit. That's just not practical. I don't even do that. I can't do that. Sometimes I suffer with insomnia, and 10 minutes into it, I can feel my eyes dropping down. Sometimes I spend my devotional standing up. It's the only way I can keep my blood pressure high enough to stay awake. (laughs) No, it's a willful decision. It's not that we spend every waking minute praying or every waking minute reading God's word, that's absurd. What is it then? It's setting our minds on the things of Christ. It's choosing to ignore the dynamic of the world, walking with Christ. You say, well, I'm not sure if I am filled with the Spirit. I I, I just, I might be. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. Well, here's a couple of quick things, just as we're running through this text. You might want to ask yourself. Life without the Spirit looks something like this. First off, you're at odds with your Maker. You have a sense that you're lost and disconnected from the source of life. Our Father creates us for relationship with Him. That's our core principle. That's our core truth. That's what grants to us life in all of its wonder. And so if you're not a Christian, or if you're not filled with the Spirit, or not walking with the Spirit, better said, If you have pushed him away, you have this feeling of disconnection, lost, no relationship. You willfully turn away. It's like placing cotton in your ears and patches on your eyes and running about and wondering, why is the world so quiet and so colorless? Disconnect. Here's the second one. Life without the Spirit also puts you at odds with yourself. Remember what Paul wrote to us? To set the mind on the flesh is death. Put you at odds with yourself. You're shut off from the Spirit of God. You have no wisdom. And life becomes this kind of sordid affair where you're running and running and running and trying this, but it doesn't quite satisfy. And running and trying this, but it doesn't quite satisfy. And this, that you've so longed to have, oh, my precious, I have it. But after a while, it's not enough. Not walking with the Spirit. Here's the third and final. Life without the Spirit puts you at odds with others. <laughs> with others. We're to be in relationship vertically with our Creator. We're to be in relationship horizontally with those God's made in His image. And without the Holy Spirit, sin takes root in the attitude of our minds, and we, we have this attitude of owedness. Owedness. I'm owed. <laughs> I'm not getting my fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met in this relationship. I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I'm owed. (laughs) The attitude's going to sound like that when we're not walking with the Spirit. So what keeps us walking in the Spirit? I, I know I'm not condemned. I know I have this freedom in Christ. I want this liberty, and I want to obey the unction of the Spirit. How do I do it, preacher? Tell me. You kill sin. You kill sin. Look at verse 12 and following. We're turning a final corner here. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, here it is, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do I find this Spirit? How do I embrace this Spirit? How do I enjoy this Spirit? You kill flesh. You kill sin. You put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen, the Puritan, the most brilliant theologian Britain has ever produced, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Well, put some flesh on that for me, preacher. Well, It looks like this. Tim Keller's words are best here. Pastor from New York City, he says... How do you kill sin? It looks like this. A Christian doesn't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off of it, you know? We see our kittens and our puppies weaned away from their mother, so they're not interested in the milk bit by bit. I'll just not do that sin quite so much. No, no, Keller says, it doesn't work that way with sin. You want the spirit, you want to hear his voice, you want to move in his footsteps after him in his wake. you kill sin. You don't play games, Keller says. You don't aim to wean yourself from it. You don't say, I can keep it under control just a little bit this time. You get as far away from sin as possible. You don't just avoid things you know are sin. You avoid things that lead to sin and even things that are doubtful. This is war. There is a spirit to obey. Finally, from this text, we see there is a kingdom to gain. There is a kingdom to gain. Unlike Dante Alighieri in the Inferno, we're not headed to hell. Even Presbyterians now should be saying, "Amen, praise God." (laughs) There's a kingdom to gain. Look at verse fifteen and sixteen as we finish off. For you did not, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Aren't you glad? God is not using fear to draw you closer to himself. Do you know that? He does not. 2 Timothy says to us, God has not granted us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and sound mind or self-control. That's what God's given to us. That's what we have. We don't have to be fearful that God's going to ground us to powder. That's not him. That's not our God. Here's our God. Here's our God. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into Fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic word. We would do it in the equivalent, Daddy. That's tender, isn't it? That's intimate. You don't call anyone Daddy, (laughs) except that one who holds you close. So close. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. We are the children of God. Have you ever thought about it? God's kingdom, except for the Lord Jesus, is populated by those who have been adopted, every single one of us. You might have that great privilege in your life. You might be adopted by an earthly parent. It's wonderful. All of God's kids are adopted, every one of them. And he receives us in this spirit of adoption and he draws us in by his grace and he reminds us of what is true. No one is naturally born into this kingdom. No one. We're all sinners. The ground is level at Calvary, isn't it? I am no different than you. I struggle as you struggle. I push away sin. Sometimes I do well. Sometimes I don't. We're all that way. Sometimes I embellish the story. God forbid, from the pulpit. Sometimes I have the crossword for my wife, for which I must be forgiven. Just like you. I'm just like you. And God shows us that no one is naturally born to this. They're adopted in. No one has an identity apart from the grace of God. No one. No one has a future apart from the grace of God. No one has anything apart from adoption. It is the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. Recently, a good friend of mine was in the midst of working through an adoption. He told me what it cost. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a testimony to that little one as they grow up to perhaps find out later, Mama and Dad have paid how much for me? What an incredible specialness. The Lord's paid a price for you too, you know unbelievable in cost, the blood of his own dear son. And by which you say, Abba, Father, Daddy. And he says, yes. The privilege of being a son or daughter given to those who have believed and received on the Lord Jesus. There is a kingdom to enter. It's an amazing thing, is it? not? God coming to us and by the work of the Lord Jesus forgiving our sin, drawing us in by his grace, adopting us as His own, that we would have him, saying, live in my spirit, enjoy this freedom, such that, finally, for whoever it is, whenever it happens, one day we come to that final day. One day we come to that final day where we draw in that last breath, and our eyes flutter open, and we hear the words of our Lord Jesus saying, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. And we realize then, in that moment, we will never be condemned. Pray with me. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in this, that although we are great sinners, Christ is a great Savior. Thank you for that shed blood which has washed away every sin, To that end, we praise your name, and we give Christ his glory, even now by the Spirit. And we pray this for the sake of our King who saves us. Amen.